Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. I will end the reading week with this is the word of the Lord and you would respond. Please respond by saying thanks be to God. Verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. Without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be. Thank you, Hanatu. Uh, uh, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to the chairs. Uh, in front here, I'm not going to do it again. You guys, you guys, you guys are you've proven to be recalcitrant and you don't obey um, the word of the man of the Lord by sitting behind. But that's fine. Don't worry. Um, it will not threaten your the blotting out of your names in the book of life. I can assure you. All right. Welcome. My name is Femi, and I don't know if there's anyone that's worshiping with us for the first time today. We're really happy to have you. Um, we've been going through the book of Colossians, and we intend on going through the entire book of Colossians this, uh, this, in this period. And so we started, and we've done about four, and so we're now on the fifth one. Um, I don't know about you guys, but there's something that is typical of many of Lagosians, which is typical of most Nigerians, but you think our Lagosians shouldn't be like this. And it's that we are very fascinated with the, maybe because we have so many people in Lagos. So people don't fascinate us again. So we now get fascinated with those who are non-people. You know what I mean? Angels, demons. You know, you, know, you blame, you attribute everything to them. So like there was, um, there's somebody in this church who I found out was having problems, diarrhea and all of those things. So I wrote to the person. I said, ah, that uh, sorry, heard about it, praying for you. And then stay away from the kind of food. I called it Jekuje, but I don't know how to... I said, stay away from the kind of food that causes that. And then the person wrote me back and said, ah, no, the thank you that they are better, that um, it wasn't actually food. It was uh, their village people that were causing it. You know. So we, we're so fascinated. Now, maybe you are not a believer. Maybe you don't believe in um, the, the spiritual world and all of those things. But you are still fascinated with something else that is outside of this world. Like a lot of people who are into science and futuristic science thinking, you are really fascinated by not just life forms outside of this world. You are fascinated by creatures outside of this world. We used to call them extraterrestrials, right? But now we, there's a general word we use for them. What is it? Aliens. You know, aliens. And we call them aliens because they are not from the place that, they belo that we belong. And so when they come, they are aliens. And aliens and foreigners sometimes, when we're now talking about the relationship between human beings, Aliens, foreigners sort of use the same thing. So for example, like we have a lot of, you know, Niger people, 
Uh, they say one out of every six black people in the world is Nigerian. And you know sometimes you even see some people that don't claim to be Nigerian, like they're from another country, like that guy's a Niger guy. You know. But we have Nigerians all over the world. And you can know a Nigerian, let's say living in the UK or in the US, you can know them by certain things, right? Um, for instance, you can know them by the food they eat. Right? You get tired of all this bread and butter and vegetables. Uh, my mom once said that she went for a trading and they were giving her, um, she called it away, like, am I a goat? Right? You're giving me leaves, leaves. So our food is different, but our accent is also different, right? You can tell. And you can tell that we are aliens there. It reminds me of a song someone wrote. He said something like this. He says, um, I, don't, um, I don't take tea. I don't take coffee. I take tea, my dear. Uh, I like my toast done on one side. You can hear it in my accent when I talk. I'm an Englishman in New York. And I know, you can know the age of the, of the, of the, uh, of the, of the, of the, Congregation, the first service and second service, because most of you are looking at me like this. Okay, the chorus go, then goes like this. Oh, I'm an alien. I'm a legal alien. I'm an Englishman in New York. All right? No, they still don't know it. All right, I got called thing. I often thought, how would he, if he was Niger, how would he write that song? I don't, well, he says, I don't take tea, uh, coffee. I take tea, my dear. Ah, Maybe I don't take coffee. I take agbo. My dear, you know, something like that. Or uh, when he says, I don't take toast, I, I like my toast done on one side. The issue is not about toast. I mean, I get gay bread. I like my, my bread that it stretches and there's good egg inside. You know, that kind of thing. But you see, what we understand there is he's, he's, he's giving us, he's expressing this, form, uh, this thing about him being an alien, an alien in a particular place. The process, though, <laughs> of becoming an alien is what we call alienation, alienation. Now, alienation has, um, it's a very complex thing, but it has both sociological and psychological dimensions. So the psychological, that is when somebody is alienated from themselves, you are estranged from the emotions that you feel. But if it's sociological, you are estranged from colleagues, friends, family. And it has a huge effect on us. What Paul tells us, though, in this text that we're going to look into is that it also has a spiritual dimension, as you see in verse 21. But what he also does is that he gives us a solution to get out of this, this, this um, malady that is alienation. He gives us a solution, but he gives us a solution in a uniquely biblical way. What do I mean by that? If you follow four words in verses 1 to 23, uh, sorry, one word that occurs four times, you see it, you, 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 you can read something like this. He says, once you, verse 21, now he has reconciled you, verse 22, to present you, verse 22, if you continue, verse 23. The reference to you there show us three divisions of time. You see, when you and I think about time, we often think about time in a calendar way, right? So we say today is March 17, 2019. So we think 2019, 2020, 2030. That's following it in the calendar. But you also think about time sometimes through events. When you were born, when you first went to school, when you graduated from school, when you got your first job, you understand? We think about it, or when you got married, we think about it through events. 
And Paul here is giving us another way of thinking of time. When he gives us the past of a believer, the present of a believer, and the future of a believer, he is telling us view time in light of what God has accomplished in Christ and the effect that has on a believer, that we call redemptive historical time. I'll say that again. He says, view time in light of what God has done and or has accomplished in Christ and the effect that has on a follower of Christ. That is Christ's redemptive work. And so we call that a redemptive historical time. So if you are dealing with the issue of alienation generally in, and alienation from God, Paul is going to say, hey, Here's how you can deal with it. And we look at it in three different ways. The first um, um, heading we'll look at is the alienated past. The second is the reconciled future. And the third is the persevering present. The title of the sermon is Freedom from Alienation. The alienated past, the reconciled future, and the persevering present. So let's start. The alienated past. Now look at how we start in verse 21. It says, once... You. So once you gives us the once that is at one time. That's sometime in the past, isn't it? At one time, you. Now it's going to describe what happened in time past. What happened in time past is you were alienated. You were alienated. Once you were alienated. How many of us have been alienated before? Hands up. Now, I'm not talking about whether you're an alien, but I'm talking about the process of being alienated. It could have been maybe a peer group in secondary school. You know how it started? Everybody wanted to be with the cool people. But when you went with the cool people, you had that one friend, that friend that you wouldn't let go. At least, eh, I'm not there with those, we used to call them gangs then, right? You went in the gang. But then something then happened. That your friend, all of a sudden, starts getting in, 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 in JS1, both of you were ugly ducklings. Right, you didn't. But your friend, JS2, and JS3 started really becoming fine. So the gang started to like her. Unfortunately for you, you just remained war yeah. Right? So the gang started to like her. They started to draw her in. As they started to draw her in, she started to push you away. You know, she doesn't pick your calls anymore. She doesn't. And you felt alienated. Or it could be in church, a group of friends that you, uh, you felt part of in church. You guys used to do stuff together, and one way or the other, you just found out that they don't want you around anymore. Maybe it's because of the fact that you don't know how to pray very well, right? Or you can't pray long. You're always telling them, okay, when are we going to finish? But somehow, they push you away. For some of us, it was the ex. You know the ex. You decided you wanted to break up with the ex. Right? You decided you wanted to break up with the ex, but you thought that you guys were still going to be what? Because when you broke up, you said that most stupid thing. You said, I'm sorry, you know, I know it doesn't work out, but we can still be what? One of my friends, as she was about to say, she said, just don't say it. I am not your friend. We are not friends. What, what friends? Why are we friends? Still want to be calling, chatting. We are friends. And so now, six months later, you see the person there in one place, and you're trying to say hi. And the person just, I beg go. And you feel that feeling of estrangement. It's what I've just all described, our sociological ways in which we're alienated. But the feelings that then are conjured up are psychological. Some of those symptoms are feeling left out of conversations and events. Have you felt like that? 
like when you've been sidetracked, like when you put in your own contribution, everybody just went quiet. Like, man. Or, you know, um, Sarah was, Sarah, Sarah, Sarah was uh, going out. She had plans. And then uh, Nankin was like, hey, Sarah, where are, you, where are we going? To, uh, are we going uh, what are you doing this evening? Afternoon, ah, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just chilling. I'm just, I'm not there. Ah, why don't we go out? Nah, nah, I just feel like, you know, just, I just chill. OK, all right. And so it's now like 8.30. And then Nankin is going on her WhatsApp, and she now sees stories. She now sees Sarah with like six other people in church, like, hey, you know. The feeling of being left out. It's actually very painful. And so you have these strong things, or feeling insecure. And what that it does is that it makes you feel insecure about yourself. You start to become overly conscious. Why was I excluded? You start to become overly conscious about your flaws. Is it the way I look? Is it how I was educated? Is it the way I talk? Is it that I, why don't I feel, why don't they want me? And what's of you then probably conclude, because they don't love me. I feel unloved. It's a very difficult thing. That's the process of being alienated by somebody else. But sometimes we are the ones that alienate ourselves. For instance, perhaps the problem is that you have an uncontrollable temper, so that when you explode, no one can calm you down. So that the next time you are around, people start walking around eggshells like, oh my god, when next? Because Yami is laughing, we all know he's laughing and all that. It's nice when he's laughing. But somebody then says something that you know, you know, Yami is sensitive and everybody's just waiting. And Yami just explodes. And everybody's looking at their phone, looking at the computer, asking about the weather and all of that. And so gradually, they move away from you, not because they wanted to alienate you, but your behavior alienates you from them. For some of us, is that we like to dominate the group with our ideas and our suggestions. We don't want to care about what anybody else thinks. We don't even know when we are doing it. Or you're the kind of person that your problems are the things that you always want to talk about. You always bring about your own problems in the group discussion. Even when somebody brings up their own problem, you find a way of connecting that problem to something that has happened to you in the past. After a while, people really just get tired, sick and tired of you. What does that signify? We see that that person, by their behavior, reveals something about themselves, their heart. By those, the behavior of uncontrollable anger, the behavior of always talking about their problems, the behavior of always dominating the group, it says something about their heart. It says that they have a heart disposition that is self-absorbed, a heart disposition that only thinks about themselves. Far too many people have said that they feel alienated from God because God hasn't made himself known to them well enough. But what Paul tells us here is exactly what happens when you alienate yourself from people. He says that once you were alienated from God, why? Because you were enemies in your mind. Enemies in your mind. Not just the thinking, but it's more of a mindset, or better, a heart disposition. Your heart disposition towards God is one of enmity. How can that be proven? You know what Paul says after? He says, 
because of your evil behavior. Remember what we said, that the behavior of the person eventually alienates that person from the group, and it reveals something about the person's heart. Paul is saying exactly like that with God. That when you constantly behave in a way that you know does not please God, and you still say that you have God, you have a problem. God created this world. God is the one, at least this is what Christians believe, that God created this world. This world is intelligently put together. It functions in a way that could not have come as a result of accident. And so if God stands behind this, he says, this is the way to go. Follow these laws if you want to flourish. But then you decide to say, no, I'd rather go in another way. I actually think this is a better way of living. And then things start to go awry. But then you encounter some of us, maybe as Christians, far too many people that say this thing. They say, they love God. I really love God. In fact, don't ever tell me that I don't love God because that will be judging me. You don't know what is in my heart. And I think some of those people had listened to too much of Darling Jack or Michael W. Smith music. What I mean by that is, you know Darling Jack, for instance, there's a, no, don't get me wrong, I love Darling Jack, I love um, Michael W. Smith. Uh, but, you know, some of the time, some of those songs, they, it's right for us guys, they just say, it. it makes us a bit uncomfortable. You know, hold me close, uh, let your love do what? Surround. How does love surround? Right? So we're in worship and we get into this because so many people when they say love God. They say God wants us to love him. So you think about how you love your spouse and the way they just their love makes you feel. You know? It's like that means just feeling Sarah's love around him. Even though they are separated like this, he's feeling something. There's something around. God forbid he now tells her, hold me close. And I will say, no. <laughs> Not yet. And so we translate that feeling of love and we say, my relationship with God, we love each other. I love God. So you're into worship and you just like, let your love surround me. Bring me near. Oh, God. And then somebody interrupts that worship. Are you mad? <laughs> Can't you see I'm worshiping? And there are many of us like that. It, we define the love that way. We would say, look, do you know how long I spend in the word? Do you know how much I speak in tongues? And yet when you are relating with your employees, you use harsh words. You display hatred towards people. You look down on the poor. You sleep with people that you are not your spouses. Or you engage in sexual activity with people that are not your spouses. And you say, don't judge me. You don't know what's in my heart. I love God. Because we've only, we've decided to reconstruct love in, and put it in a context that is purely emotional. And don't get me wrong, the Bible does not talk about love as though it is something void of affection or emotion. It just doesn't say that that is the exclusive way you think about love. Jesus says this, if you love me, Keep my commandments. And so I'll say for the person that, some of us here may be saying, I don't want to hear that. I, I, I know you've, you've justified yourself to say, well, I do things that, I do a lot of good things. I'm a good person. Paul is saying, if you tell me that, I don't know your heart, I do know your heart. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That is, 
we can judge someone's heart by the consistent pattern of behavior. So if you say you love God, but you consistently swindle people. If you say you love God, you're consistently harsh towards people. If you say you love God, you consistently cheat. If you say you love God, you're consistently greedy. Paul will say, I know your heart more than you know it yourself. Now, you see, a consistent way of behaving this way also leads to two things that are almost, um, they come from this life of alienation. And you can see uh, them in verse 22, uh, hints of them in verse 22. It leads to a sense of feeling blemished and a barrage of accusations. What do I mean by the sense of being blem feeling blemished? For some of us here, you can't run away from it. Even though you say, well, nobody can tell me what to do. I live my life the way I feel. There's a sense in which you feel unclean. If I could describe it this way, you say, well, but, but, but I do a lot of good things. Do you know how many good things I do? I like this illustration. I like to use this illustration. And permit me, if you've been in this church, and any time you preach, I preach, I talk about food a lot. You know, I, I like food, so my illustrations are good with food. Now, imagine a, a um, BA as a lawyer, right? She's a lawyer. She's doing well as a lawyer. And you know lawyers, you have to wear black and white in most places, all right? So BA, she's made it good. She, she's worked hard. She's done very well. And she's reached this height. But there's just one thing. Now, I'm not saying this about BA particularly. But you know they say you can take the person out of the bush. But you can't take the bush out of the person. Not you. So BA is working in this top law firm. She's in the top building. And there, it's lunchtime. There are many restaurants there. But BA grew up in Suruleri side. There were a lot of bookers there. You understand? When B.A. wants to eat food, she needs to go to a booker. So B.A. eventually drives to Lagos Island. She leaves Victoria Island, drives to Lagos Island, gets into one wonderful looking mama put, you know, big port, all of those things. B.A. then goes there. Ghana is still very bit sophisticated. B.A. now goes there. She orders all kinds of meat, right? Assorted. You know assorted. When say, give me assorted. So you put in the beef. You put in the roundabout. You put in the shaki. You put in their body, you put in the pomo. Now, BA likes all of them, but her great weakness is pomo. You understand? Now, you can like something. I'm not talking about like, but like as Faust said, when something is, is your weakness, it can destroy your life. You understand? So when BA, she eats everything and she waits for the pomo. Now, when she's eating all of them, she's eating them respectably and uh, with decorum, the kind of person. But when she gets a pomo, she loses all sense of control. So she picked up the pomo, she put it there, and she now realized, oh my God, it's not coming. And she's like, I will allow it. And pull! And one spot on the white. Oh. Now, when she looks at it, what does BA say? It's one spot. I mean, look at all the white that is there. It's just one spot. And you now go to the office. What's the first thing people say? Ah, now, wow, that lunch must have been very good. And BA's like, what do you mean by the lunch very good? Like, uh, the thing is there now. Like, no, can't you see all the white that is here? No, in fact, in some ways, the whiteness there serves to show the spot itself. It brings it up. And so it is with when we say, I have been doing so many good things. Can't you see all the good things I'm doing? And you have a couple of spots here and there. Guys, that isn't enough. Your righteous deeds like that, eventually, at some point, if you present it to God as the means through which God should hold you um, in some kind of uh, 
um, hierarchical way that you are better than all those other people, that only condemns you. And then the second thing it then does, because of that feeling of blemish, that feeling of uncleanness because of what you're doing, that puts you in a situation where you can be accused. Positively accused by God's righteous judgment, God's righteous standards that say, look at what you're doing. This is wrong. But negatively by yourself, because then if you feel unclean, you don't only feel unclean towards God. You feel unclean towards people. Why would people love me? Why would people do all these things for me? And then you open yourself up to the devil, the worst. In fact, in Revelation, he's called the accuser of the brothers and sisters who accuses them day and night. He takes every single thing in your life, every misfortune in your life, and he attributes it to something bad that you have done, something this, something that. The further you alienate yourself from God, the more you feel unclean, and the more you take all these accusations upon your life. This isn't where we want to be. That leads me to my second point. Now, as I've painted the picture, if things were to end there, if things were to end there, that would be really, really a very dark picture, isn't it? Except they don't. And that's because of two very important words that Paul gives us, opens verse 22 with. Notice what he says. He says, but now. Can you see it? Can you see it? Oh, you guys don't open your Bibles again. Open your Bibles. Can you see verse 22? It says, but now. Turn to your neighbor and say, but now. Please, whenever you see but now in the Bible, don't just go over it very quickly. Pause there. Because something dramatic is happening. He says, once you were, but now. You see, the now in the but now signifies a change in time, doesn't it? It signifies a movement from once, at one time, and then it signifies time has changed now. The but in the but now signifies a change in events. Once something happened, but that is something is going to happen that is not the same as what happened before. So, but now, once you are alienated, but now something is going to happen. It doesn't mean that what is going to happen totally makes, renders all that has happened in the past meaningless. No. It's saying that most likely what is going to happen is another event that supersedes that one. So, it, it, because sometimes as Christians, we try to make meaninglessness of our past. We call it positive confession, right? So this guy calls in to work today. He's just going to the hospital. He then says to his boss, um, uh, sorry, I can't come into work today. And the boss says, oh, why can't you? He says, because I'm strong. He says, so why aren't you coming to work if you are strong? You cannot make light of your illness. You are sick. That's why you are going to the hospital. You can't positively confess yourself out of it. But now does not say, don't say what has happened in the past didn't happen. But now says, even though something has happened in the past, there's something that has now happened that is going to render what has happened in the past not your life's defining experience. Turn to your neighbor and say, but now. But now what has happened? He has reconciled you. 
Those who were alienated before have now been reconciled. At this point, you are now like, I don't want to have anything to do with this. Because Femi, you don't understand what I've gone through in my life. I don't like empty promises. I have invested in relationships. This guy and I, we spoke about how, you know, he told me how he would love me to be the mother of his children. We spent time thinking about what we're going to do, how we're going to grow up together. And the guy, eventually, in the year we're going to get married, he jilted me. Empty promises. What guarantee do I have? Do you know my past? Do you know the things I think about? What guarantee do I have that you are going to give to me that says, I have been reconciled now? I've also invested in many businesses. You know, especially the ones that tell me that, look, they told me, they said, if I work very hard and get more people to buy into it, I will move to the next level. And then when I move to that level, all those ones also buy another one, I will move to the next level. I put in all my effort, and the whole thing just crumbled. Forever living products. Boom. <laughs> I need a guarantee. I work with evidence. I don't want to be disappointed. Can I give you a guarantee? But now you have been reconciled, and here it is, through the physical body of Christ through death. By the physical body of Christ through death. Like, what does that mean? Let me explain. You know when it says through death there? When you and I think about death, you say, okay, Jesus Christ died, and so he died. But it's not, that, it's not that simple. If you turn to Revelation chapter 20, towards the end of the Bible, especially verse 12 to verse 15, it tells us of a scenario because the Bible also says that this world that we are facing, the, again, remember what I said about time. It looks at time through events. There is an event that's going to happen that's going to end the world as we know to lead to another world. Now, that end that it's talking about, Jesus is meant to return and he's meant to judge. And so it says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, it says at one point that, let me just read it, it says, and I saw dead, great and small. How is that possible? Standing before the throne. That shows you that physical death is not the end of everything. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 15, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And in verse 14, towards the end, he says this. The lake of fire is the second death. In other words, he says the dead. So these are people who have died physically. And the Bible is telling us that what, and in essence, they were judged according to what they did, and if their names were not in the book of life. So what you do in this life does matter. And he's saying they were judged, the dead were judged there, and it's possible to die a second time. That's what he calls the second death, by throwing, being thrown in the lake of fire. Now, for those of us who feel, ah, that feels bad, and all of those things, the, 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 the building that collapsed, the school children, that killed those school children. Do you think it would be right, just, for us to just say, let's just comfort the parents and that's it? No, a lot of us are asking questions. Some people said that that building was earmarked to be demolished two years ago. The next question is, how come people were living in there? 
Because some people said it was erased eventually. Was someone bribed? Who authorized it? We say that because of this kind of evil, justice has to be served. Amen? And God is saying, look, this world I created was not meant to be filled with disasters and people killing each other and all manners of injustice. And the way I repair that eventually is to have a settled form of justice that eventually destroys all evil and people who are perpetrating that evil. And that's why the lake of fire and sulfur is there. In fact, he describes it in a different way. Paul describes it in a different way in 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7 to 8. He says this, He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Everlasting destruction is also seen as everlasting alienation. In other words, he's saying this. If you continue to estrange yourself by the things that you do in this world from God further and further, this is a precursor that will culminate in an eternal alienation from God. You are just repeating in this world what will then be translated in the world that is to come, but don't want, you don't want to experience this. And that's why the warnings come. So then what is it about Christ's death that mattered? When Christ died on the cross, he did not just die the first death, he also died the second death. And he's saying that those who follow him now don't have to be alienated from God in this world, and they will not be alienated from God in the world that is to come because Christ on the cross has suffered the second death from us so that we can be reconciled with God. So it is in Christ's physical body that we can then say, once we were alienated, but now we are reconciled. Once enemies in our minds, but now friends in our minds towards God. Once blemished, now clean. Once accused, now acquitted by Christ's physical body through death. And he's not finished. Because if you notice, there's another you in verse 22. There is an end goal to this but now. The end goal to but now has to do with then. He says that what's going to happen, he says he will present you holy in his sight. You know in Philippians 1, Paul says that he that began the good work in you shall do what? Shall be faithful to complete it to the end. So what is he saying? He says to present you holy in his sight. But now he's reconciled you so that he can present you holy. Now he gives you a status of clean. He gives you a status of acquitted so that at the end you will be made thoroughly holy. He gives you a status of holy now because at the end of time when he's finished with you, you will be made thoroughly holy. Get this. As Christians, by faith and repentance, God looks at us. In our behavior, he can look at uh, Nanke now and say, she is not fully holy. Am I abusing her by saying that? Nanke, if I say you are fully holy, will I be lying? Okay, I thought you were going to say yes, because then that would be, you will then be lying. But in behavior, none of us is fully holy. So when God sees us and calls us his children, we are his children, how? He says he has adopted them in Christ. So he looks at Nanke. Why Nanke has the status and God can say, my daughter, is because when he looks at Nanke, he sees what? Christ. It's not because all her behaviors, all the things that she does, are in accordance with what Christ will do. 
Christ's perfection is put upon her as a status for God to acknowledge. But that gives God the time to work on her to eventually bring her to, in reality, to the status that he's given her in the present. Do we understand? And so at the end of time, when Christ is done with her, thoroughly she will be presented holy. So that's why it says, husbands love your wife, your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and what? Blameless. I love a picture in the book of Revelation. And that picture, um, notice, when we talk about we are God's righteousness, we sometimes use a garment uh, metaphor. So we say we have put on his righteousness as a garment. So we will say we are the righteousness of God, how? In Christ. And so we put on Christ's own spotless lamp, uh, spotless robe. When he eats his own pomod, there's nothing. He knows how to do it perfectly. Or you understand? We put that on. But then in Revelation, it talks about the end of time. It says that at the end of time, there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, we talk about our righteousness. Our righteousness is based on Christ's own perfect righteousness and his own behavior. But look at how it describes the supper of the Lamb and it describes the church at the end of time. It says this, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come. Revelation 19 verse 7. And he said, and his bride has made herself ready. Verse 8. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And then in brackets, he describes it. He says, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. If you look at yourself today and you say you are frustrated with the fact that you don't always act the way you are meant to act, don't worry. Rest in the fact that God sees you as holy and God is working on you because his goal is to present you to himself without blemish and without any um, stain. And this helps you also deal with the enemy. And I'll talk about that after. But this is the goal. Why can you do that? Why can you come on the last day of judgment and God says, why should you come in? You can say, but look to Christ's physical body, and I'm sure by the time you check the, the book of life, you'll see my name there. Amen? Now, this leads me to the third point, and I want to quickly finish there because we've run out of time. Persevering future. Notice that there's a condition. All of these wonderful things, but ends with the condition in verse 23. The condition is almost like Paul spoiling the party. He said all these wonderful things. You've been reconciled. He now says, if you continue in your faith. Oh boy, what? So, and this trips a lot of Christians up. You end up having two different camps, all right? Because Paul is saying, or oh, let me just put it this way. He says, if you continue your faith. So there's some people on Elijah's side, right? Who is on Elijah's side? If I be a man of God, I mean, Elijah didn't have the beard that you have, just saying. All right, um, so if you're on Elijah's side, you say, I have been reconciled. It is finished. Done, done, done. Whatever Christ has done for me is done. My, my works don't add anything. I am in Christ. I'm the righteousness of Christ. Even when I sin, it's nothing, it's not, nothing is going to happen to me. I have once saved. I've been saved forever. 
and that's it. My, faith, my works have nothing to do with it. So that's one camp. The other camp is here. And then says, uh, but he says, if you continue your faith. He says, if you continue your faith. Works has something to do with it. In fact, it is your faith and your works together that saves you. Your faith brings you into the kingdom, but your works keeps you into the kingdom. It's the hand of God, but it's the leg of man. All right? It's God's, it's God to, it's God's job to open the door. It's, it's your own job to keep the door closed. Faith and works. After all, they say faith without works is dead. So you need your faith and your works to save you. So the two of them like to shout on each other. This one says, I can drink anyhow I want. This one says, if you drink alcohol, you go to hell. So how do we reconcile this? Where do our works play? Because that condition means something. Let's put it this way. Um, no, I'm, I'm tired of using uh, Nanke and uh, Ken. Temi, right? Temi, uh, you don't want to be used. That's what she's looking at. Temi and Ayomide. So, Temi and Ayomide, um, um, they, they like me. Let's just say they like me. You know, they, say, they think I'm a very generous guy. And so, um, they ask me for something. And I like to give good gifts. So I sign a check, but I can only give to one. I sign a check, and I say, take, uh, I immediately take 10 million naira. Just take it. You know, just take it. So, but tell me, ah, sorry, I can't give you anything. But my, um, you know, Elisha had Gehazi. You know Gehazi, right? So my own Gehazi, Dami Adirami, <laughs> Dami then says, uh, tell me you feel bad, Abi, don't worry. I know where he puts his checkbook, all right? So, and I know his signature. I've been watching him for so long. So Dami now signs a check of 10 million naira, and he gives her. <laughs> Unknown to her, that's a fake check, because Gehazi can only sign fake checks, all right? Unknown to her is a fake check. So now two of them have two checks in my name, same branch, I know that, that doesn't mean anything to us, but if, in 1990, if you wrote a check, you can only cash it in a particular branch, all right? So they now want to go and cash the check, all right? They want to cash. How would they know? How would they know uh, if truly the check is real? How would they know? Huh? Or when would they know? How would they know? Tell me. Speak loud. Come on. You are bright people. Huh? At the teller. When they go to the Tel Aviv, so they both go to the bank. Temi presents her own first. And they say, please, can you stay on this side? Ayomide <laughs> presents her check. They say, please, come inside. One of them is able to cash the check. The other one is not. Now, let me ask you something. By cashing the check, by Ayomide cashing the check, did she give money to herself? Did she, what, does she, did she contribute any of that 10 million naira? Huh? She didn't. If she didn't cash the check, would she be able to spend the money? But if she cashed the check, would she be able to spend the money? But by cashing the check, was she, did she contribute anything to that money? She only just confirmed that the money was real. Isn't it? I, um, Temi tried to cash the check. The thing bounced. What did that prove? It proved that there was nothing there. She never really had any money in the first place. That's how our works work. You see, our works don't serve, they don't add to our, our salvation, our reconciliation with God, but they confirm it. They prove it. 
And the fact that they prove it doesn't mean that it is worth adding. Just like the fact that she cashed the check does not mean that she contributed any of the money to herself. It was freely given by myself. The fact that you work, your works that you do that come out from your faith come out does not mean that you are contributing to your salvation. Do you understand me? And if there are no works there to show your faith, it means that you just cashed a bounce check. You were never truly saved in the first place. Amen? So when Peter talks about it, Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort not to get saved, but to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, the things being out to your faith, godliness, out to your godliness, uh, all of those things, temperance and all of those things. If you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The conditions are real. The warning is real. But by continuing, he's not saying, but if you continue in your faith, this is how you stay in the faith. He says, this is how you can confirm the faith, and this is how you can know whether to dread the day of Jesus coming or to look forward to it with great anticipation. And he then teaches us how to stay in that faith. I'm going to quickly end with that in two ways. One is positive. The other one is negative. In the positive way, he says, be established and firm. He uses building metaphors that show that we should be stable. Be stable in the gospel. And this is what he means. Many circumstances are the things that come to test our faith and move us away to show whether it's genuine or not. Do you remember Jesus said he sowed, uh, the, the, the sower sowed um, seeds among different soils. And one of them was at the wayside. And he said the sun came and he scorched that particular seed. And he interpreted that as saying that when trials come on account of the word, that the person then falls away. And there are many people who start being alienated from God what happens is that the circumstances start to sway you, make you waver. What we are called to do is to master our circumstances by being established and firm in the gospel and not allow them master us because we waver in the gospel. I'll say that again. We are called to master our circumstances by being established and firm in the gospel and not allow them to master us because we waver in the gospel. Let me give you some examples. Some of you here have to stop believing that God has, is still condemning you for a sin that you genuinely repented for and people can confirm that you have been walking in that repentance. You cannot keep going back to allow yourself to be condemned by, you, uh, by, uh, by, that, by that sin. You have to move out of that because if you continue to condemn yourself, you know what's going to happen? You will not feel that you are accepted by God. You start to alienate yourself. Meditate on the fact that he didn't reconcile you by you adding three more good works to negate the one bad work. He reconciled you through the body of Christ. The consequences for that sin have already been paid. Amen. Now, but some of us, here's what happens. Some people alienate themselves from God by alienating themselves from God's community. You know the way that person spoke to you in church? Or they said something about you that you didn't really like. And maybe they were wrong. Now, rather than seeking a godly and gospel-centered reconciliation, 
You know what they do? They waver and they decide to gossip. Or by the gossip, they start to divide and then they stay away. Maybe you have doubts like that. Rather than ask the questions, we stay away. And we forget that God has also decided to meet you through his body. And so divisive behavior starts to alienate them from God. They say, I'll just stay at home. I don't want anybody to offend me. I don't want anybody. I don't want to. And by doing that more and more, you are alienating yourself from God. Rather, what you should do is seek reconciliation. Gospel-centered reconciliation. It costs God. It costs God something to reconcile us to himself. Do you think that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was child's play? You say, ah, because he was God. No. Jesus was alienated on the, on the cross so that we can be reconciled. That's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so when you seek reconciliation with people, it will cost you. It's a sacrifice. But at the end of the day, what comes out of it, the godliness of reconciliation between a brother and sister is far more beautiful than the sacrifice that will cost you. Jesus, for the love that, for the, for the love that was said before him, he endured the cross for the joy that was said before him. But then finally, there is a negative aspect to it. It says, remain in the faith by not moving from the hope that is in the gospel. And then he describes that gospel as the gospel that was preached to all creation. In other words, and that he, Paul, became a servant of. In other words, he's saying there are some gospels that are preached by others that you should stay away from. And we'll say more about that in chapter 2 in this place. So be sure about what the gospel is. And he's saying the true gospel will also keep you on eternity. It will keep you focused on eternity. He says don't depart from not just the gospel, but don't depart from the hope that is held out in the gospel. What is that hope? Well, I've already described part of it, which is that you'll be made thoroughly holy. Do you know why we need to be made thoroughly holy? It's because in eternity we'll dwell with God forever. And you hear that, you'll be like, so what? You know, when the God created the world, it says in Genesis chapter 3 that he will come in the cool of the day to meet with Adam. It's always been God's desire to dwell with his image bearers. But Adam sinned, and what happened? God alienated. He alienated himself by sin, and God alienated himself from him by banishing him from the garden. But later, after Abraham had a son, God said, that son will eventually lead to a nation, and that nation is going to be my own nation. What was one of the ways God used to show that that nation belonged to him? He said, build me a sanctuary so that I can dwell among you. So they built a tabernacle. Later, they built a temple when they got into the promised land, signifying that God was dwelling among his people. But they continued to sin, sin. They were alienating themselves from him. So he alienated himself from them. He exiled them. But it was always a desire to dwell with his people. So that finally, Jesus himself came and said, destroy this temple, this physical body, and I will raise it up in three days. And he then says, he was talking about the body of his temple. Why? Because a temple is the meeting place between God and man. And Jesus, who is God that is man, is the only one that can bring God and men together. Amen. But Jesus left, didn't he? 
But when he left, he said, no, I will not leave you comfortless. I will send another like me. That is, I am God come in human flesh, but I will send God who can be all around. He will be in your heart and he will be in this temple that is called the church. Ephesians, verse 9, Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. He comes by his spirit, constantly showing us he wants to dwell with us. But at the end of time, when he has thoroughly made us holy, because right now, even though he's with us, we are not fully with him. We can't fully dwell with him. We can't fully enjoy his pleasure. So you know what he does? He makes us thoroughly holy. He gives us a new body. And then in Revelation 21, at the end of time, when John says, Behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw Jerusalem coming down from heaven as a bride prepared for her husband. Later he says, you know what? He says, it is done. For the dwelling place of God is now with mankind. At that point, when we are thoroughly holy, we will dwell with God. He said, we will see his face. The epitome of all beauty and all pleasure. And we'll dwell with him forever. You say that is very boring. Ah, no. Whenever I travel to the UK now, I only go for work. I spend a couple of days, I want to get out there. It's always exhausting. I have a specific reason I go. But what I always do every time is that I add one extra day before I start the work. Why? I go and visit my best friend and wife, the wife's tree is like my best friend. And from the time I get there, we're in the kitchen, on the table. You know what we're doing? We're just, we're catching up on old times because we have to, there's time that has been left out. We catch up on that. And then we talk about what's happening in the present. And then we talk about what's happening in the future. Do you know the one thing that we are not concerned on? Time. Time just keeps going. It melts away, why? Because of the pleasures of the people that you are dwelling with. When we are dwelling with God, when we are fully in our resurrected state, fully holy, thoroughly holy, when we will be with God, I can guarantee you, there is nothing you watch, there is nothing you, no experience you have, there is no food that you have tasted that will be able to compare with the pleasures that are with Him. He says, at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is why God says, don't alienate yourself. I have reconciled you through Christ. That which you anticipate in the future, guys, let's start to practice now. By being established and firm and not moving out of the hope that is held out in the gospel. Thank you for listening to the gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church Love Jesus Love people Love Lagos